Chapter 7 In the Powerhouse Alone in the prison room, after Dex had been dragged away to be subjected to the Rogan Inquisition, Bran gnawed at his fingers and paced distractedly up and down the stone flooring. For a while he had no coherent thought at all, only the realization that his turn came next, and that the Rogans would leave no refinement of torment untried in their effort to wring from him the secret of the atomic engine. He went to the window and absent-mindedly stared out. The whining hum from the great domed building off to the right, like the high-pitched droning of a swarm of gargantuan bees, came to his ears. He listened more intently and leaned out of the window to look at the building. Under that dome, it came to him again, was in all probability the mainspring of the Rogan mechanical power. If only he could get in there and look around. He might do some important damage. He might be able to harass the enemy materially before the time came for him to die. He leaned farther out of the window and examined the hundred feet or so of sheer wall beneath him. He saw, scrutinizing it intently, that the stone blocks that composed it were not smooth-cut, but roughly hewn, with the marks of the cutter's chisels plainly in evidence. Also there was a considerable ridge between each layer of blocks where the Rogan's mortar had squeezed out in the process of laying the wall. Never in sanity would a man have thought of the thing Bran considered then. To attempt to clamber down that blank wall, with only the slight roughness of the protruding layers of mortar to hang on to, was palpable suicide. Bran shrugged. He observed that, to a man already condemned to death, the facing of probable suicide shouldn't mean much. With scarcely an increase in the beating of his heart, he swung one leg out over the broad sill. If he fell, he escaped an infinitely worse death. If he didn't fall, he might somehow win his way into that domed building whence the hum came. Cautiously, clutching at the rough stone with fingertips that in a moment or two became raw and bleeding masses, he began his slow descent. As he worked his way down, he slanted to the right, toward the near wall of the retaining yard whose end was formed by the round structure that was his goal. Beneath him and to the left, the broad street swarmed with figures the tall ones of the Rogans, and the shorter, sturdier ones of slaves. Any one of those dozens of grotesque pedestrians might glance up, see him, and pick him off with the deadly tubes. Under his fingers the mortar crumbled and left him hanging, more than once by one hand. For fully five minutes his life hung by a thread apt to be severed at any time. But he made it helped by the decreased gravity of the red spot, and released from inhibiting fear by the fact that he was already, figuratively, a dead man, he performed the incredible. With a last, slithering step downward, he landed lightly on the near wall of the enclosure, and started along its broad top toward his objective. Now he was in plain sight of anyone who might be looking out the windows of the towering building, or from the dome ahead of him but this was a chance he had to take, and at least he was concealed from the swarms in the street. Making no effort to hide himself by crawling along the top of the wall, he straightened up and began to run toward the giant dome. Hardly had he gone a dozen steps when he suddenly understood the meaning of the high-walled enclosure to his right. 
Off in a far corner rose a slate-colored mound that at first he had taken for a great heap of inanimate dirt. The mound began to move toward him, and metamorphosed into an animal, a thing that made Brand blink his eyes to see if he were dreaming, and then stop appalled to look at it. He saw a body that dwarfed the high retaining walls to comparative insignificance. It had a tree-like tail that dragged behind it, and a thirty-foot, serpentine neck at the end of which was a head like a sugar-barrel that split into cavernous jaws lined with backward-pointing teeth. Two eyes were set wide apart in the enormous head, eyes that were dead and cold and dull, yet glinting with senseless ferocity. It was the sort of thing one sees in delirium. With increasing energy the creature made for him, till finally it was approaching his sector of the wall at a lumbering run that was rapid for all its ungainliness. It was apparent at a glance that the snaky neck, perched atop the lofty shoulder structure, would raise the head with its gaping jaws to his level on the wall. Brand ran, and after him thudded the gigantic lizard, its neck arching up and along the wall to reach him. A scant five yards ahead of the snapping jaws, Bran reached his goal, the dome, and clambered over its curved metal roof away from the monster's maw. He stopped to pant for breath and wiped the sweat from his streaming face. "'Thank God it didn't get me,' he breathed, looking back at the bellowing terror that had pursued him. "'Wonder why it's there. It's too ferocious to be tamed and used in any way. It must be kept as a threat to hold the slaves in hand. It certainly looks well fed." He shuddered. Then he began to explore the dome of the building for a means of entrance. There was no opening in the roof. A solid sheet of reddish metal, like a titanic half-eggshell, it glittered under him in an unbroken piece. He crept down its increasingly precipitous edge till he reached a sort of cornice that formed a jutting circle of stone around it. There he leaned far over and saw, about ten feet below him, a round opening like a big porthole. From it were streaming waves of warm, foul air, from which he judged it to be a ventilator outlet. He scrambled over the edge of the cornice, hung at arm's length, and swung himself down into the opening. And there, perched high up under the roof, he looked down at an enigmatic, eerie scene that the structure was indeed a strange sort of powerhouse was instantly made evident. But what curious, mysterious, and yet bewilderingly simple machinery it held! In the center was a titanic coil of reddish metal, formed by a single cable nearly a yard through. Around this, at the four corners of the compass, were set coils that were identical in structure but a trifle smaller. From the smaller coils to the larger streamed unceasingly blue waves of light like lightning bolts. Along a large arc of the wall was a stone slab set with an endless array of switches and insulated control buttons. Gauges and indicators of all kinds, whose purpose could not even be guessed at, were lined above and below, all throbbing rhythmically to the leap of the electric blue rays between the monster coils. Almost under Brand's perch a great square beam of metal came through the building wall from outside, to be split into multitudinous smaller beams that were hooked up with the bases of the coils. Across from him, disappearing out through the opposite wall, was an identical beam. 
the terminals for the metal plate system that extends over the whole red spot, murmured Brand. This building is important. But what can I do to throw sand in the gears before I'm caught and killed? He surveyed the great round room below him more thoroughly. Now he saw, right in the center of the huge control board, a solitary lever that seemed a sort of parent to all the other levers and switches. It was flanked by a perfect army of gauges and indicators, and was covered by a glass bell which was securely bolted to the rock slab. That looks interesting, Brand told himself. I'd like to see that closer, if I can climb down from here without being observed. Why, he broke off, where is everybody? For the first time, in the excitement and concentration of his purpose, the emptiness of the place struck him. There was no sign of light in the great building, no workmen or slaves anywhere. There was just the great coils, with the streamers of blue light bridging them and emitting the high-pitched, monotonous hum audible outside the dome, and the complicated control board with its quivering indicator needles and mysterious levers. That was all. "'Must be out to lunch,' muttered Brand, his eyes going fascinatedly toward that solitary, parent lever under its glass bell. "'Well, it gives me a chance to try some experiments, anyway.' It was about fifty feet from his perch to the floor, but a few feet to one side was a metal beam that extended up to help support the trussed weight of the roof. He jumped for this and quickly slid down it. He started on a run for the control board, but almost immediately he stopped warily to listen. It seemed to him that he had caught, faintly, the squeaking high tones of Rogan conversation. Miraculously, the sound seemed to come from a blank wall to his left. He crept forward to investigate. The mystery was solved before he had gone very far. There was an opening in the wall leading off to an annex of some kind outside the dome building. The opening was concealed by a setback, so that at first glance it had seen part of the wall itself. From this opening drifted the chatter of Rogan's. Brand stole closer finally venturing to peer into the room beyond from an angle where he himself could not be seen. And he found that his whimsical reference to lunch had contained a ghastly element of fact. In that annex were several dozen of the teetering, attenuated Rogans, and an equal number of slaves. And the relation of the slaves and the Rogans was one that made Brand's skin crawl. Each Rogan had stripped the tunic from the chest of his slave. Now, as Bran watched, each drew a keen blade from his belt and made a shallow gash in the shrinking flesh. There were a few stifled screams, some of the slaves were women, but for the most part the slashing was endured in stoical silence. When red drops began to ooze forth, the rogan stooped and applied their horrible little mouths to the incisions. The slimy devils! Bran whispered hoarsely, at sight of that dreadful feeding. The inhuman, monstrous vermin! But now one or two of the Rogans had begun to utter squeaks of satiation, and Bran hastened away from there and toward the control board again. He hadn't an idea of what he might accomplish when he reached it. He didn't know but that a touch of the significant-looking parent lever might blast him to bits but he did know that he was going to raise absolute hell with something, somewhere, if he possibly could. 
Swiftly he approached the great master lever, protected by its bell of glass. At least it looked like glass, for it was crystal clear and reflected gleamingly the blue light from the nearby coils. He tapped it experimentally with his knuckles. At once pandemonium reigned in the great vaulted building. There was a siren-like screaming from a device he noticed for the first time attached under the domed roof. A clanging alarm split the air from half a dozen gongs set around the upper walls. Squealing shouts sounded behind Brand. He whirled and saw the Rogans, interrupted in their terrible meal, pouring in from the annex and racing toward him. Rage and fear distorted their hideous faces as they pointed first to the big lever and then at the escaped Earthman. They redoubled their efforts to get at him, their long unsteady legs covering the distance in great bounds. Brand swore. Was he to be caught again before he had accomplished a certain thing? When he had already managed to win clear to his objective? He hammered at the glass bell with his fists, but realized with the first blow that he was only wasting time trying to crack it barehanded. He glanced quickly about and saw a metal bar propped up against the control board near him. He sprang for it, grasped it as a club, and returned to the glass bell. Raising his arms high, he brought the thick metal bar down on the glass with all his strength. With a force that almost wrenched his arms from their sockets, the bar rebounded from the glass bell, leaving it uncracked. "'Unbreakable!' groaned Brand. Desperately he tried again, whirling the bar high over his head and bringing it smashing down. The result was the same as before, as far as breaking the bell was concerned. But a little trickle of crushed rock came from around the bolts in the slab to which the bell was fastened. A third time he brought the bar down. The glass bell sagged a bit away from the slab. He had no chance for more assaults on it. The nearest Rogans had leaped for him. Slimy arms were coiling around him, while the loathsome sucker-discs tore at his unprotected face and throat. Savagely, Bran lashed out with the bar. It caved in a pair of the long, skinny legs, bringing a bloated round head down within reach. He smashed it with the bar, exulting grimly as the blow crumpled bone and flesh almost down to the little mouth which was yet Carmen from its recent feeding. The process seemed a sound one to Bran, unable as he was to reach the Rogan's heads that towered six feet above his own. Methodically, Swinging the bar with the weight of his body behind it, he repeated the example. First a crash of the bar against a pair of legs, then the crushing in of the Rogan's head when he toppled with agonized squeal to the floor. Again and again he crushed the life out of a Rogan with his one-two swing of the deadly bar. They were thinning down now. They were wavering in their charges against the comparatively insignificant being from another planet who was defending himself so fiercely. Finally, one of their number turned and ran toward an exit, waving his forearms and adding his high-pitched alarms to the incessant ringing of the gongs and shrieks of the warning siren under the roof. The rest rushed the earthman in a body. Steadily, almost joyfully, Bran fought on. He had expected to be annihilated by one of the Rogan shock-tubes long before now, but as yet there was no sign of any. Either these Rogan workmen were not privileged to carry the terrible things, or they were too occupied to think of going and getting them. Anyhow, Bran was left free to wield his bar and continue crushing out the lives of the two-legged vermin that attacked him. 
with almost a shock of surprise, he saw finally that he had battered their number down to three. At that he took the offensive himself. He rammed the bluntly pointed end of the bar almost through one writhing torso, broke the back of a second with a whistling blow, and tripped and exterminated the third almost in as many seconds. The creatures, without their death-tubes, were as helpless as crippled rats. Panting, he turned again toward the loosened glass bell, and battered at it with the precious bar. Gradually the bolts that held it to the stone slab were wrenched out, till only one supported it. But at this point, from half a dozen set-back doorways, streams of infuriated rogans began pouring into the building and toward him. The one that had fled had come back with help. End of chapter 7